Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. Author and Atlantic staff writer George Packer argues Americans no longer know how or want to know how to live with each other in a democracy. Packer splits the nation into four political camps in his new book, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. Whichever camp you're in, you're likely to despise and distrust those in the other three. America has become a country unable to have a coherent conversation about where we want to go next. Packer joins us to explain why why he thinks that is on form right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. For much of the late 20th century, Americans enjoyed a certain amount of clarity about Democrats and Republicans, who they represented, what they hated about each other, and their competing plans for America's future. But in the 21st century, it's become impossible to understand what's going on politically by focusing exclusively on these top two parties. In his new book, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal, author George Packer describes four rival narratives, each making a distinctive claim for America's soul. Well, George Packer, thank you for being here today. Good to be with you. You know, you've you've written a really depressing book here, George, but, but I was hoping we might cut to the chase at the start of this hour. Do you believe Americans can find enough common ground to last another decade as a representative democracy? Uh, I don't think it's as quite as depressing as you say, Rachel, but we can perhaps get to uh, levels of uh, grief, misery, and, and optimism later on. We have to believe that we can. I don't know if we can because so many of the key indicators right now are pointing in a downward spiral, which we've been in for some time, for years now. They, they're now accelerating, um, but we have to believe it because this is the only country we've got and we have to live with each other. We're stuck with each other. Something about the, the period of quarantine brought that home for me that we there's no exit um, and there's no there's not going to be any moment of great revelation where one side or the other or one narrative or another suddenly collapses and, and a different one emerges victorious. It's much more of a war of attrition and I have some ideas in the book about how we're not going to convert each other out of a worldview, but we might find some common identity that makes us all Americans that we've lost touch with because we've been so focused now for many years on division and um, mutual 
hatred. Well, it's interesting you use the word convert, and I do want to get into that later uh, in the conversation. But why don't we start, for the benefit of those who haven't read uh, the excerpt of your book in The Atlantic, and, and by the way, we have a link to that article up on our website, kqed.org slash forum. Why don't we start with you running down the four political groups you've identified? We've got number one, Free America. Sure. And I should say at the outset, this is not an ethnography of the United States. It's not an attempt to portray the entire country. It's the four dominant political narratives, which by definition means that they come from elites and many other Americans and other narratives might not see themselves represented here because these are the dominant ones which have um, to some extent crushed uh, competing ones. Free America to me is Reagan's America which is the America I've been living in my entire adult life. Uh, It's been the most powerful politically. It's essentially libertarian economically. It believes in free markets, low taxes, deregulation, and the, the, the opportunity for each individual to realize their talents and for government to get out of the way because government can only make us dependent and inefficient and um, make the economy worse. So that that's been the, the main Republican narrative and really the most potent of them since about 1980. Then we have, I guess, uh, real America (laughs) sticking to the Republican side. Right. Well, let me get to smart America first, which is because there's a sort of chronology to them. I think of free America as emerging in the 80s. Smart America, which is the America of professionals, of the educated, um, of the meritocrats, that came to the fore under Bill Clinton um, and became a potent um, sort of an adjacent narrative to free America. It took on many of the ideas of free America, uh, free trade, um, small government, um, capitalism as the engine of growth, but did so more within the context of globalization and multiculturalism, openness to the new, to diversity. Um, and it has probably culturally been the most influential of the narratives. And it's essentially the narrative in which I live um, and in which most people in the media live. And it, it, you could say it continued from Clinton to Obama Next is real America, which you mentioned, Rachel. That is a rebellion from below against free America. It is Sarah Palin's America. She used that phrase during the 2008 campaign, which is where I got it. Real America is the America of the white Christian heartland, where people see themselves as the true Americans and the elites above them and the non-whites below or alongside them are not considered the real Americans, you know, the hardworking, producing, uh, taxpaying backbone of the country. And that America became Trump's America. It's populist. It's uh, suspicious of the rest of the world, of diversity. It's nativist and xenophobic. And that has had a a lot of uh, influence and a lot of attention in the last few years. And I see it as a rebellion against free America. And at And the fourth of them is also a rebellion. It's just America, which is the America of social, the social justice movements, which has been a kind of rebellion against smart America, against the meritocracy. It says, no, we're not a meritocracy. We are more like a caste society in which there's a hierarchy of groups which have always been in this order and in which there's always been oppression of 
one group that sits above and another against another group that sits below. And that has been really influential among younger people, uh, especially educated younger people, the millennial generation. And um, it's, it's, it's really quite alive in media and in our culture today. And so as just as real America rebelled against the ossified libertarianism of free America, because by the Trump period, free America's promises had really been broken for many Americans. So just America is rebellion against the promises of smart America. So those are the four narratives that really have dominated my adult life. Is it fair to say that, you know, you could define just America as as the woke children of those neoliberal smart Americans you describe? Very much. There was a book back in the, I think, in the late 60s or early 70s called Liberal Parents, Radical Children. And I think we're living through something not unlike that period, where in this case, instead of boomers, we have millennials. And those two generations are are more alike than either of them really wants to admit. Yeah, there is a generational rebellion of um, young people who might have come up in the meritocracy with all of its stress and anxiety and its demand for success. And while not giving up its advantages or its stresses, have said enough, this isn't the world we want. This isn't a just world. It's a world that essentially has become a kind of aristocracy where uh, a class of people just reproduces their own privileges and, and whole classes have no access to those privileges. So it's a disillusioned narrative that says, uh, getting as far as you can on your talents and efforts uh, turns out to be a lie. So there's a, yeah, there's a, an overthrow of my generation, I would say, by the, the generation of just America, which is in their 20s and 30s. So it's interesting. I mean, like we have four categories here, but they, they really, both of them split off into two categories that are still functionally, you know, un, under the Democratic umbrella, under the Republican umbrella. Can you imagine a third political party or a fourth political party evolving from the current situation we have now? You know, one always thinks that it's about to happen. Throughout our history, there have been third parties that seemed likely to offer a threat to the two parties. The Republican Party was a third party. And it was the only one really since the founding of the two-party system that became, that replaced an old party. Every other third party has had the fate of contributing important ideas, challenging uh, the narrative of the two parties, but then being absorbed into one of them or the other. And I think that is almost what we are doomed to keep repeating. There are things in our constitution and really in our political culture that simply make us a two-party country, unlike most European democracies. But if there ever was a time when a third party could arise, now seems like a pretty good moment. There's so many Americans who feel politically homeless. And in a way, I've written Last Best Hope for those homeless Americans. I think I'm one of them. And I hope the book finds its way into their hands because it it doesn't stick to to any single uh, established view, and it it tries to break them up and to find something different. How how white is this list, George? Do you think a lot of people who are not white can easily find themselves on this this list you've written up? I think some non-white Americans can find themselves and do find themselves in smart America in the professional class. 
more and more, in fact, um, and some in just America, in the social justice movements. But this is predominantly a white list because these are the dominant narratives. The, the last few chapters of the book leave these four narratives and find a fifth one that I call equal America, which to me is a narrative in which other Americans can find themselves working class Americans, non-white working class Americans. And it's in a way it goes back to some of the fundamental, not just ideals, but passions of American history in order to try to get us out of the trap we're in. I think we're in this trap of uh, mutual loathing, mutual misunderstanding of tribalism largely because in the last half century, two things have happened. One, we've become a multicultural society like never before. And two, we've become unequal, fundamentally unequal, almost like an aristocracy in which there are classes that are at the top that will not yield to classes below. And that has, we become less fluid than we were even in the post-war period for most Americans. So those two factors have created this status competition that drives the four narratives. I want us to get back to what Tocqueville called the passion for equality. And I'm going to stop you there, George, because we're headed into a break. We are talking to George Packer, author of Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. He's also a staff writer for The Atlantic. Give us a call, and I'm, I'm going to give you an alert here. We've got a different number for today only because we've been having some phone troubles this morning. So get your pen at the ready. As I say, 415-553-3387. And now again, that's 415-553-3387. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And a reminder, today's number... 415-553-3387. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we're talking to George Packer, author of Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. Uh, You were just about to talk about Alexis de Tocqueville, but first I just want to remind our listeners we've got a special phone number today, thanks to some technical difficulties. It's 415-553-3387. That's 415-553-3387. Of course, we're monitoring your comments and questions on Twitter and Facebook where we're at KQED Forum and email us at forum at kqed.org. It's all good. All right. You were about to talk about Alexis de Tocqueville, who you talk about a lot in this book, George. What what does this 19th century political philosopher have to tell Americans in the 21st century? 
I mean, it turns out that some things don't change. So yeah, during the pandemic, when I couldn't travel and report, I just decided to try to do as much reading as I could about American history. And Tocqueville is still there as the essential guide. So much of it still applies. Tocqueville wrote that the basic American characteristic was a passion for equality, the desire for that everyone had to be as good as everyone else, not to have to be relegated to some inferior class. This is a passion that has been thwarted throughout American history, but has not been snuffed out. It's still there. And my thought about today is that we've become so unequal in so many ways that it's perverted our democratic system. It's made us incapable of feeling like fellow citizens and therefore of governing ourselves together, of doing big things collectively, such as ending a pandemic, which we had such a hard time with last year. It became so divisive rather than unifying us. Tocqueville is still right that equality drives Americans. And so at the end of the book, I say we need to, to do two things. We need to create conditions of equality, whether it's through restoring the safety net or making education uh, better for poor Americans through a variety of means like using taxes that aren't all local. But we also need to reacquire the art of self-government. That's a phrase from Tocqueville as well. We've, we have forgotten how to talk to each other, to debate, to listen, to argue, to compromise, all the skills that you need to govern yourself as a democratic people. And those two are connected. If we restore our status as equal citizens, I think we will relearn how to govern ourselves. And that's where the hope in Last Best Hope comes in. I'm going to challenge you there because, you know, equality certainly didn't exist in the America that uh, de Tocqueville was talking about. Uh, equality hasn't existed up until some magical moment, uh, you know, b- before the year 2000. Uh, <laughs> ask any woman in America today. Ask any person of color. Uh, you know, uh, it, I'm not saying necessarily that that inequality makes for a healthy democracy, but but uh, it it seems like you're talking about a past that maybe didn't exist. No, I'm actually not saying it existed. I'm saying the passion for it has always existed. And when it doesn't, when equality itself isn't possible, when it's denied, there's social conflict in this country, endless social conflict. And we will never have an end to social conflict as long as groups of Americans do feel themselves to be unequal or of lower status. Um, And that's been true from the beginning, which you can find in all the crisis points of American history, whether it's the Civil War or the Great Depression or the 1960s, equality was always at the heart of the struggle. There are some countries where whole groups of people are permanently consigned to an inferior class and there is still social peace, but that's not possible here because equality is both at the foundation of the Republic in our founding documents, and it's a a burning desire. It's not a reality, it's a desire. And so I'm saying what we need is to turn the desire into a reality in order to uh, have the chance of ending all the social conflict we have and of reacquiring the tools of of self-government. So I actually agree with you, Rachel. It's never been there, but it's always been the force that drives us apart and also creates change. Beautifully put. Well, let's go to the phones now and Frank in Mill Valley. Hello? Hi, Frank. You're on the air. 
Thank you. Um, I may have missed I, I I was being screened as a lunatic club, and I, I came back and you were offering some solutions. I'd like to challenge you, since you've thought about this more systematically than, than many of us, um, if you had to go all in on one solution, Texas Hold'em, push your chips across the table, um, mm-hmm. uh, go outside the box. And, and I'm thinking of something like, you know, the French – attempt to insist on public schooling, uniform public schooling for the entire populace uh, up to a certain age before it starts to diverge into private academies as a way of pursuing. I think, wasn't it the Tocqueville who also said the perfect is the enemy of the good? Um, and Someone, and someone smart you, said it. <laughs> who? Someone smart. I don't know who. <laughs> I, there we go. But it's one of my favorite phrases. So so if you had to pick one outside the box, you know, taxation is a, such an easy target. It's such a desirable target. But we had the great society where they redistributed income. You know, ironically, Lyndon Johnson gave it a good shot. And I think everybody will agree it didn't work. So where would you where would you put your chips? You don't sound at all like a lunatic to me. Um, what you say about education is is interesting, but I think in America, we're just too decentralized a country. There's too much local control of everything, especially education, for us ever to accept uh, a kind of uniform national schooling. I would say national service. I mean, I know I'm not the first to propose it, but if you're reduce, if you're limiting me to one idea, national service for young people, whether it's military or civilian, whether it's teaching or building, having Amer- young Americans meeting other young Americans in who they would otherwise never run across from all four narratives and having to work together and learn together and listen to each other and get to know each other. That would be a radical thing because as it is, we grow up in our own world and are likely never to have to talk to someone who we might profoundly disagree with. We can avoid them if we want. National service would be a way both to instill some sense of commitment to the country and to do something for the country, but also just to allow us to to see each other as fellow citizens. So that's my one shot. <laughs> well, thank you, Frank, for that excellent uh, question, uh, teeing that one up, although I guess I'm mixing sports metaphors here now. Let's go now to Tyler in Sacramento. Hi there. Um, well, I'm all about that idea of national service. I think there has been a kind of breakdown of any sort of notion of public and private um, distinction and having something some sort of reinvigoration of a public good is a great idea. But my main concern is all, actually your notion of equality, because I um, see this notion of equality as something to be achieved, this sort of teleological notion um, of equality as an end that we can gradually approach is problematic. I'd rather think of equality as a principle from which politics can start. And so if we already just assume equality, um, what what um, what what can we create from that? What sort of new political forms can we create? I think the basic forms of representative democracy are flawed, and that we need to basically think of politics outside of the state. And I'll take my uh, your response off the air. Well, that's a great thought. And by equality, I don't mean exact equality of results. Uh, that has never been something most Americans have wanted or pushed for. Even a great socialist like Eugene Debs revered Abraham Lincoln, who was um, the champion of the self-made man. So it's not equality of results, it's equality of status. But concrete material conditions have something to do with status. If you feel you have no chance to rise in society, then you will feel unequal 
even if um, we don't expect everyone to end up in the same place. And that's where we are today. We have a meritocracy and an educated class that has become a hardened aristocracy where you're born into it. You, you're not, uh, you don't work your way into it. I think one thing that might answer your desire is to have us been more involved in the deliberations that affect our lives. Um, and th these two are not my original ideas. I am not a policy thinker, but I do like to pick and choose where I think they're interesting policies. And some people suggested something France is actually experimenting with, which is having citizens like on juries uh, called together randomly to try to solve local and national problems. Um, and it would bring, again, bring Americans together across the dividing lines and also give them the sense of responsibility and of power that so many Americans don't have now. Uh, Julie writes, we're farther away than ever with regard to wishing for or achieving equality between people. The divide is greater than ever, and perhaps the desire for equality is also. But, but George, I, I want to ask about something you sort of uh, hinted at earlier in the show. There's a kind of religious fervor to political debate these days that makes it really difficult for the, the various groups to have a rational conversation with each other, either on the, on the political stage or, or, you know, at the dinner table. Do you think there's any way to close this divide? That's a great question. First, I would say I don't agree that we're further from equality than ever. I mean, if, if, if someone lived in the 1950s or the 1850s, I don't think that would seem possible. But to answer your question, um, there, there are ways um, that in which politics has become like religious experience, um, whether it's QAnon which is a conspiracy theory that has a kind of almost religious hold on its, uh, its followers, its believers, or some of the, the more rigid practices of anti-racist training in which uh, people are called upon to testify publicly about their own sins and repent them and then be redeemed by uh, the, the clergy of anti-racist training. These to me are both of them, uh, which I'm not equating. I think QAnon is insanity. Um, they make it impossible to have the kind of rational evidence-based dialogue that I think is at the heart of a liberal democracy, where you have to be able to make your case. You have to try to persuade the other side. If you can't, then so be it. You, you then have to try to live with your differences, which is also difficult. We've gotten very far away from that. One thing we've dropped in many cases is civics education so that our kids don't really know either much about the history and, and system of government of this country, nor are they given a chance to debate and to disagree or to persuade. And so that would be maybe after national service, something we could try is to bring civics education back. Um, these both seem maybe like feeble attempts to solve a giant problem, but we have to start somewhere. Another giant problem, it seems people on the right and left alike distrust civic institutions these days and the people who run them. So that's politicians, that's scientists, that's journalists like you and me. I mean, presumably we're preaching to the converted today on KQED. 
Maybe, although I think a, a lot of journalists and others um, have lost some of the faith in their own work and maybe are moving away from older practices into new ones that show a certain amount of uh, disenchantment with the way journalism has always been. But you're right that people, and the, the polls are clear, they don't trust our democratic institutions, they don't trust government, they don't trust the media. Um, and how to restore trust is is a huge, huge problem. I've been writing about this ever since The Unwinding, which I worked on 10 years ago and was based on a lot of reporting in parts of the country that felt left behind. And what I noticed was how cut off ordinary people felt from power, from institutions, from elites. They felt the game was rigged and that the elites were in a, in a, in a sense uh, in in a rig game that only benefited them. And I do think there's something to that. I think our political and media elites benefit from the divisions that America's beset with. And in some ways they stoke them. And it may be that ordinary Americans are less divided than they seem to be through the media or through politics. And that in our normal lives, there's actually more mixing, more fluidity, um, that the temperature is not quite as hot as it is when you go onto Twitter. So it's difficult to separate what is going on in people's lives from what's going on on Twitter, especially after a year of the pandemic when we've all gone down these digital rabbit holes and have forgotten what it's like to actually meet with human beings. And that's been one of the destructive aspects of the pandemic. Hilda writes, I think it's unfair of liberals to portray all conservatives as anti-immigration. Many conservatives are more concerned about security and legal process and are, are not anti-other. Robert writes, let's start this discussion by stipulating that the Republican Party today from top to bottom does not believe in democracy as a form of government and they're getting worse each day before our eyes. As long as this is the case and they continue to promote death through guns, climate change and virus dismissal and more, there's no common ground, only capitulation to un-American extremism. I agree with Robert. I share his distress and his worry about the future. It's The Republican Party is, has been headed this way for a long time, but now it's it's accelerated immensely with Trump and with the, the false claim of, of a stolen election and with state legislatures around the country trying to make it harder for people to vote on the basis of that false claim. It's as if the party has given up on persuasion and on coalition building and is entirely focused on narrowing down the franchise so that a minority can continue to be in power, which is a really destructive and anti-democratic course. And yeah, it, as long as that's happening, the Republican Party is a nihilistic force. It is not a, a force for uh, revitalizing American democracy. I still don't, I'm not ready to accept that we are two countries forever and that secession or conquest are the only two alternatives. So I try in the book to describe American character, a national identity that may be hard for us to see, but as soon as a foreigner meets one of us, it's clear, yes, this person's American. What are the things that make us all Americans, even though we hate each other? And there are many. And, and to me, a lot of them come back to that passion for equality and that desire to be on equal terms with everyone we meet. 
um, which is something that Whitman always described in, in his poetry. And I'm just clinging to that as a kind of basis for rebuilding um, a national narrative that can include us all, because without it, we I think we're really doomed. No, no one's going to win this. Uh, our next comment comes from a listener who I'm going to guess has not read the book because you, you really do address what's about to come up. But I, but I think it raises some interesting questions. Mm-hmm. You have overlooked over half of Americans who are kind, volunteer in their communities, help their neighbors, take in foster children, work in average jobs. We are not all in your categories and putting people in them inherently divides us. It's our systems that have allowed the divisiveness to rise. Voter suppression, the far right media, social media, Jerry mandering, education based on tax base, a society rooted in racism. Those are the issues that allow minority rule. She's right um, about that. And she's also right that my book um, doesn't focus on volunteerism and civic life, at least not in a descriptive way. It does at the end in a prescriptive way. Um, But as I said at the start, this is not an attempt to portray the country. That would be a much bigger and more ambitious uh, book that would require a ton of reporting. This is an attempt to portray the way uh, American politics and culture um, are seen uh, in the dominant narratives. In the and, dominant narratives. We're talking yeah. to George Packer, author of Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. Have you tried to reach across the political divides? How did that go? What did you learn? Give us a call, 415-553-3387. That's 415-553-3387. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. Whatever you do, though, stay with us. I'm Rachel Myro, and you're listening to Forum. you might call very good at hide and seek and since we got xfinity we have wi-fi all over the house even in my super secret hiding spots so i can kill time in here by streaming my favorite ha found you how you left to find my tablet on get wall-to-wall wi-fi on the xfinity 10g network restrictions apply not available in all areas actual speeds vary you're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, and we're talking with George Packer, who who recently wrote Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. There's a substantial excerpt in The Atlantic magazine, which I recommend you head to. We've got a link uh, on our webpage, kqed.org slash forum. And as I've been saying uh, all morning, we've got a different phone number today, 415-553-3387. So with that, why don't we go to one of the phone calls we've got lighting up the boards, Max in New York. Hi, Max. Hi, yeah. Um, hi. I have a, a, oh, and I'm on the street, so I'll pardon any street noise, but I just have a comment um, in relation to the conversation and equality, uh, something I've been thinking about for a while, is that, um, I, you know, I, I think that the progress that progressives are really heading towards isn't necessarily equality, but is uh valuelessness and so it has to do like with social worth and this idea that some people are inherently worth more than others 
And I think that, you know, equality can be a little bit of a misnomer because the idea is that, you know, everybody has individual experiences. Um, and so that's kind of like the definition of true intersectionality is, uh, you know, understanding uh, that principle. And so I think that, like, the moral arc of the universe doesn't bend towards justice. It's actually bending towards uh, valuelessness. Mm, valuelessness. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but if it is, then I hate it because a world without values is, is a meaningless world. Um, I think there is a way in which what I call just America, which is about equality, is not getting us there because it actually creates a new hierarchy, a moral hierarchy in which, in a sense, the bottom rail is on top, in which the oppressed groups uh, are elevated to the top. And we are all seen as members of monolithic identity groups. And what the caller calls our individuality gets lost, which includes the variety of qualities we all bring, the diversity of views we have, the complexity of our character. Um, and so individuality is a crucial component of equality. But I fear that all four of the narratives, including Just America, um, are too rigid and create winners and losers in a way that is not going to get us to equality. Um, and equality is a, is a hard thing. Tocqueville recognized that equality leads to inequality because the more equal we feel, the more individualistic we are. And then we pursue our own separate destinies and interests without regard to one another. So there has to be some glue that binds us together as equals. And that is self-government. Um, and that is a difficult thing to practice. It's not natural. It goes against thousands of years of human history. And I fear that Americans are losing the knack for it today um, for all sorts of reasons that, that we've been talking about. Penny writes, it seems like the New Deal was the closest we came to a government that was working towards social equality. Isn't that a system that could reunite all but the oligarchs? And, you know, just piggybacking off of Penny's idea there, I, I would say, you know, that there was a time when politicians tried to spread national narratives of collective hope and optimism. You know, FDR, like Penny's mentioning, JFK, even Reagan. Uh, we don't seem to hear that from our political leaders on either side these days. I absolutely agree with, with you, Anne Penny. Um, the book has quite a bit of thinking about patriotism, which is something a lot of Americans are uncomfortable with and a lot of Americans may use as a cudgel, but which I think is indispensable. The feeling of attachment, of loyalty to one's country and fellow citizens in the same way that we're attached to our families. Without it, I don't see how we can have that, that collective ability to get big things done. Franklin Roosevelt created a narrative of, of patriotic America, which included people who'd been left out. It also excluded people. It did not include Black Americans, but it did include workers, the poor, farmers, the, what he called the forgotten man. And it was... It, it actually put those um, obscure Americans at the very center of the narrative as sort of the heroes of the narrative um, and the engines of self-government, the people who, on whom self-government depended. And Reagan, you're right, did it in a different way. For him, it was more the entrepreneurs 
um, the business people. But once you leave out whole categories or once uh, our social divisions get too deep for us all to be part of one national narrative, then there's a kind of a, a spiral uh, or an escalation in which each is going to fight like hell because it sees the other as a existential threat. That's where we are now. It, it can come from our leaders, but I think it can also come from ordinary people who just refuse to be uh, defined by the media and our political elites in a way that gives them, gives them the elites power and leaves the ordinary people in the same hole that they've always been in. Let's go to the phones now in Sangamitra in Campbell. I hope I said your name right. Hi there. Are you with us, Sangha? Sangamitra? Hello? Okay, I'm probably saying your name wrong. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll wait and go to another caller, Tamar in Marin. Hello, can you hear me? Oh, Sangamitra, Hello? you're with us. Hello, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I am, I am. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had a question. I think this divide, like your guest is saying, this time has really created a rift between people we even considered our friends, okay, because we were so politically apart. I am, uh, full confession, I am an absolute true blue Democrat, okay? I don't like everything they do, but I support them in everything they do. But there are friends whom we cannot reach across the aisle to, and I feel bad about that. So I would like suggestions about how you get things back to a reasonable point of discussion. Great question. I kind of want to hear from you more how you think you could do it, because these are your friends, and there must be some deep desire not to lose them. I would say one way is to stop talking about national politics, which immediately divides us into our tribes uh, and in which there's no reasoning and there's going to be no persuasion. And instead, talk about local problems and local politics, which does sometimes fall into the same divisions, but less easily. And there are more practical answers for local problems than for giant national issues like immigration, abortion, um, education. So what about trying to get on the school board together or trying to get on um, like a a local committee that's doing something to revitalize your town? And instead of focusing on what MSNBC and Fox News want you to focus on, focus on what you actually have in common, which is your community. What do you think? Is that an answer? That is an answer. I can try. Uh, But I just, I don't want to take up any more of your time. But since I live in California, and I live in a place where all around you see the homeless shacks, okay, these are people who, you know, who say homelessness is the fault of the people. I will try. Thank you for your suggestion. And thank you for taking my call. Uh, you know, she she raises an interesting point there, George, right? Like we're watching lots and lots and lots of people, especially in California, who are, you know, in desperate need of support right now. And, and yet, you know, I, I think I can say as a journalist who's covered this issue, 
quite often the problem is that those of us who who are housed, who who are doing okay or okay enough in this economy, don't see the folks on the streets as our brethren in arms. Yeah, right. And you may have a Black Lives Matter or a Stop Global Warming sign in your front yard, but does that mean you're willing to allow the zoning rules to be rewritten in your community so that uh, homeless people can can come and have a home there. That it takes more than a slogan. And it's hard for people to, to move beyond abstractions to things that might cut right to the heart of their own interests. And I don't want to expect too much from people. I don't want us to have to be saints in order to be Democrats, small d Democrats. Um, and, and so p- putting pressure on people to simply uh, renounce their advantages usually doesn't work and gets a, back, gets a backlash, gets a reaction. But if, if there are ways in which people can be made to see that their own interests are at stake in a huge problem like housing and homelessness in California and elsewhere, it's, it's, we have a similar problem in New York, then maybe uh, they don't have to be saints, but they can actually become democratic citizens trying to solve a problem together. I guess I keep coming back to the idea that a practical problem in which, which affects people in common across these divisions is the likeliest way that they are going to uh, not be reduced to killing each other verbally or otherwise. So in some ways, I think we need like the UN or some international organization to come in and organize um, cross-group activities like in Northern Ireland or Bosnia or the Middle East, where we all have to come together to put on a play or build a school and learn that we can actually do it um, without uh, falling into civil war. We're not quite at civil war, But there were times last fall when it felt like we might get close if the election uh, ended differently. And I still think we're not out of the woods at all. In fact, we may be in a bit of a fool's paradise at the moment, not seeing that the even worse times are are coming up. We're getting quite a few comments in in a particular vein. You'll see this evolve as I first uh, read a comment from Melissa, who writes, a third insight de Tocqueville commented on is that Americans operated with self-interest properly understood. The understanding that one's own self-interest is tied to the common good, which enabled us to work together to improve that common good. We've moved far beyond that. I'm old enough to remember a GOP that understood governance is the art of compromise and not solely a raw power play. And with that, I, I think we should go to the phones and Joan in Santa Rosa. Hi, Joan. Oh, hi. Thanks, hi. For, thanks for taking my call. Um, I I really take exception to equating, um, and this is in national politics, the, the um, our president's approach to our country and what will help it and everyone as much as possible. And the GOP, which is doing everything it can to block voting, to block Biden's initiatives. And it's, it's, it's not an equal comparison. It sort of reminds me of when Trump said that both sides in the Charlottesville riot, both sides uh, have fine people. Now, 
you know, it, it, it was, anyway, I object to that saying that they're, they are equal in intent and in uh, plan. I agree with you, and I, I don't think I did equate them. In fact, I think I said the Republican Party is on a nihilistic course uh, and an anti-democratic course, which I don't think is true of the Democratic Party at all. Um, I'm in a quarrel with myself about this, and I think most Americans maybe are or should be, which is to say, on the one hand, yeah, to see the threat, to see it for what it is, to not be um, blind to it. And, and to try to stop it because democracy is not guaranteed and we've moved a long way toward authoritarianism. And at the same time, not to give up on the idea that we have a common fate and a common identity. And how to do both of those things at the same time, for me, is the hardest task for a citizen today. But I think we have to do both. Um, so I'm, not, I'm certainly not equating a nihilistic, anti-democratic, power-hungry party with a party that, for all its flaws, does seem interested in trying to solve actual collective problems. Um, but I'm saying we're still stuck with each other. The pandemic made that clear. It didn't seem to convince us of our common humanity. In fact, it divided us in all kinds of ways and showed our divisions in all kinds of ways. But it also showed that you know we are all contagious. We are all quarantined. We, we need each other. We cannot um, get rid of each other. So how do we, how do we go from there? Mm. Well, I, you know, as we start to roll towards a close here on this hour, I, I, I do want to ask from your perspective, how do you think Biden is doing? Is, is he moving the needle in the right direction uh, economically in terms of voting every which way? I like what Biden's doing because First of all, I don't think he belongs to any of those four narratives. He almost precedes them. He seems more like a creature out of the Roosevelt Truman era. Um, Biden is focused on equality. He's focused on using the government to make people's lives better, to improve our material conditions, which is what Roosevelt was focused on. I think that is the best way to lower the temperature uh, so that you know the feeling of inequality and social immobility no longer turns people on one another. Um, with that, that resentment and bitterness that so characterizes our, our discourse these days. I think he's doing the right things and he's not emphasizing, I don't think, the issues that are going to divide us the most. He's not talking endlessly the way Trump did about the culture wars in which there's no peace, there's, there's no truce because these are about our identity. Instead, he's focused on improving our material lives so that we all feel we have a common stake in this country. So I think Biden, who would not have been my pick for a historic president, um, has a chance to be one, but he's up against tremendous obstacles. And uh, at the moment, you know, he's he's got big headwinds to fight. Wendy writes, would, would you say that the group you call real Americans and maybe some of the other groups don't have a desire for equality when they see themselves as better than others? Absolutely. They have a desire for their own equality. <laughs> they want to be better, as good as anyone else, but they don't want others to be as good as them. And this is a point, I, a distinction that I make in the book. 
the passion for equality does not mean you want everyone to be equal. It means you want to be as good as everyone. Um, and which may end up meaning you want to be better than people. That's been the story of the United States, as well as the drive to make us more equal. It's the two are in constant conflict and each of these groups in one way or another, including smart America with its educational credentialing are constantly erecting uh, litmus tests, uh, qualifications for being equal Americans. And those drive the other groups crazy. Um, and that's part of the logic that's, that's put us into the hole that we're in and that I'm trying to find a way out of. But you remain optimistic? I have to be, Rachel. I mean, I have kids. It's my country. We're not going to move abroad. Um, we've been through just as bad or worse. In the book, I describe the Civil War, the Great Depression, and the 60s as crises as, as great as or greater than this one. Um, and we somehow got through, not entirely well, but got through. Um, we do have an amazing ability to renew ourselves. There's a kind of experimental fluid quality to the American experiment that allows us to find new ways of being uh, Americans, of, of governing ourselves. I think we have not seen the last of our ability to do that. And with we, that, I'm yeah. going to let you go. George Packer, author of Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How?! You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.